Good morning. My name is Ryan Yoho. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. And it's my, my privilege to open God's word with you this morning. So technically, Advent is over. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's officially the four weeks before Christmas, but it's still December. Many of you are still on Christmas break. So we're going to squeeze in one more Christmas-themed sermon, take advantage of our graphics one more week before we switch everything out again. So here we go. We're going to look at, we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Our main focus is going to be verse 23, but we'll, we'll read verses 20 to 25 for a bit of context. Matthew 1, 20 to 25. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I want to specifically focus on the, the part in the middle there. Uh, verse 23, it, it ends right here at the top of this screen. This is where Matthew tells us that the coming birth of Jesus will fulfill a prophecy from the book of Isaiah made over 700 years before the time of Christ. When it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, that's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And in Matthew, we learn that the birth of Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. But, isn't the baby's name Jesus? Or is it Emmanuel? The, the, the angel literally tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. And then a few verses later, the very end, right there, what did Joseph do? He's not an idiot. He called his name Jesus. But right in the middle of those two verses, Matthew tells us that this baby called Jesus also fulfilled an ancient prophecy that there would be a baby called Emmanuel. Now, thankfully, Matthew gives us a, a little bit of help here. He he. He helps us understand what's going on because he finishes quoting from Isaiah and then he provides a translation of the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And it's important for us to understand that Hebrew names were often used to convey meaning. And sometimes those names were given by God to, to send a message or describe a, a deeper truth. Therefore, in this case, Emmanuel is, is more of a descriptive title than a personal everyday name. To use a, an imperfect analogy, but one that we're kind of familiar with, 
It's a little bit like how the name of the person currently in the Oval Office is Joe Biden. But people also call him Mr. President. Mr. President is obviously not his given name, but it's an appropriate way of addressing him because it conveys an important truth about who he is. So this brings us to, to the first big implication of Jesus being called Emmanuel. And as, we're, as we consider this passage here in Matthew, we're going to look at two truths, two big implications. The first one, though, is honestly the easiest and sort of the shortest. Here it is. Emmanuel, God with us, tells us something essential about the nature of Jesus. Particularly, it tells us three big truths about who Jesus is. By calling him God with us, we see that Jesus is God. Literally, Jesus is God. He's divine. He may be a baby, born a woman, but he is also God. He is God with us because he is God. Second, Jesus was physically present here on earth with us, literally living here with us. You could point to him. You could, you could talk to him. He occupied space. He was born in a specific place. He was born in Bethlehem. He traveled to Egypt. We know where that is. He, he moved to Nazareth. He ended up in Bethlehem, or he ended up in Jerusalem. Everywhere he went, he was with people. He was with his parents. He was with his disciples. He was with curious crowds. He was with accusing mobs. He was not a myth or a fable. He was a real person, just like you and me. He was God with us because he was here with us. Thirdly, Jesus became one of us. Jesus is the, is the God-man, fully God, but also fully man. He was God born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. He took on human form. He, he did so to get to our level, to, be, to get on our level, so to speak. He was, he was God with us. Because while still being God, he was also us. So, so when God, through Matthew, tells us that Jesus can and should be called Emmanuel, we're getting a glimpse of something essential about the nature of Jesus. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, because he was God, because he was physically present here with us on earth, and because he was one of us, he became one of us. So now let's look at the Matthew passage again. We already talked about how Matthew helpfully inserted that, that parenthetical there uh, that defined, translated the name of Emmanuel. What may not be as obvious is that he kind of did the same thing with the other name, with Jesus. In Hebrew, Jesus means he saves or God saves. So when the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save, it's a bit of a, a play on words. It's, it's a play on his name. But the angel didn't stop there because Joseph might have known that 
the name Jesus means he saves, angel, the angel adds new information. The angel says that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus meant salvation from the biggest enemy that we face, which is our sin and the judgment we deserve. So we have these two names. We have Jesus, which means he saves, and we have Emmanuel, which means God with us, right there next to each other. Same baby, two names, two descriptive prophetic names. And that brings us to the second big implication. Emmanuel, God with us, also tells us something essential about God's plan for saving his people. Specifically, the story of the Bible is that God saves his people by being God with us more and more. Let, let me put it a different way. If the birth of Jesus meant that Emmanuel, God with us, then after he died and was resurrected and ascended to heaven, did, did that mean that God was no longer with us? No, of course not. Similarly, in the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't been born yet, but that doesn't mean that God was not with his people. God was with his people then. God is with us now. But there are big differences in how God has been with his people over history. And it's in those differences that we see the unfolding of God's plan to save a people for himself. So, here we go. A brief survey of the whole Bible, the next 20 minutes or so, that's the plan. Uh, to keep it simple, we're gonna go sort of before and after. What did God, look, what, what did God with us look like before Jesus, and what does God with us look like after Jesus' time on earth? Before and after. Before Jesus, we're talking about the Old Testament, and as we consider what it looked like for God to be with his people in the Old Testament, as we consider that, I want us to think in terms of two things, in terms of God's presence and God's communication. You'll see those themes sort of throughout here. He was with his people in terms of his presence, being with them. And he was with his people in terms of communication, speaking with them. Because we can't actually cover the whole Old Testament, we're going to spend most of our time in the book of Exodus. But first, we're going to just set the stage with, with a little bit of a recap of Genesis. In Genesis, God spoke to Abraham. He told Abraham to leave his home and to go to the land of Canaan. He promised to make Abraham a great nation. That promise was passed down to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then to his grandson, Jacob. And we're told that God spoke to them, and he was with them, and he showed them favor. Genesis ends with Jacob's son, Joseph, having been sold into slavery and taken to Egypt, where eventually he's in a position to rescue his family from famine. And that takes us to Exodus. 400 years have passed. Israel has indeed become a great nation, but there's a lot of people, but they're slaves in Egypt. God appears to Moses. 
speaking from the flames of a burning bush on a mountain in the wilderness. God commissions Moses to bring the people of Israel out from Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. Moses is a bit reluctant, and God says, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Fast forward now through the 10 plagues, the Passover. Now the people of Egypt, the people of Israel are escaping Egypt. Exodus 13, 21 to 22. And the Lord went before them by day and a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night and a pillar of fire. God then parted the waters, led them across the sea, completing their escape. God in fire and smoke continues to lead them away from Egypt towards the promised land but basically, right away, they start grumbling. They, they're hungry. They're thirsty. So he, he gives them food, bread from heaven every morning. He, he provides water from a rock. And eventually, they get to Mount Sinai. That's the same mountain that God promised Moses he would bring them to. And God says to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear me when I speak with you. Moses brings the people to the foot of the mountain. And we're going to pick it up now in Exodus 20, starting in verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. But the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Moses is in that thick darkness and God proceeds to tell him the Ten Commandments, along with a lot of civil laws and the ceremonial laws. And then Moses, who's got a great memory at this point because nothing's been written down yet, comes back down the mountain. And now we're at Exodus 24, 3. Moses came and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Great. Everyone's agreed. They have a plan. So God calls Moses back up the mountain. Moses enters the fiery cloud where God is going to give him the stone tablets inscribed with those commandments. First, God has another set of instructions for Moses to give the people. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. God describes the tabernacle, a dwelling place for him to be among the people. And then God gives Moses the tablets. 
then God tells Moses, Moses, you probably need to hurry back down the mountain because the people, the same ones who promised to be fully obedient, were not being anything like it. They had made a golden calf and were worshiping it instead of God while Moses was on the mountain. Moses comes down. He takes the tablets. He smashes them angrily at the foot of the mountain. God afflicts the people. He punishes the ringleaders. And then God tells Moses to basically leave. Leave Mount Sinai. Take the people. Go to the promised land. It'll still be there. God will still give it to him. God will, will still give it to him. It'll still be flowing with milk and honey, just like it was promised. But God is not going with them. He would no longer be with his disobedient people. Moses and the people mourn this horrible news. They repent, and God shows mercy. The people then build the tabernacle, and God's glory does come to dwell there among them, to travel with them. But the pattern is set. God promises blessing if only the people will obey him. They say they will, and then they don't. When the consequences become too much to bear, they ask forgiveness. In Leviticus, this is spelled out. In Leviticus 26, God says to Israel, and I'm simplifying a little bit, but it's a whole chapter. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will bless you. I will make you fruitful. I will give you peace. If you obey my commands... I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That's the offer on the table, but they don't obey. They rebel again. This time they're punished to wander the wilderness for 40 years until the rebellious generation just dies off. Then they're led by Joshua and Israel finally enters the land of Canaan. The Old Testament continues. This, the, the nation of Israel progresses through the time of the judges, then the kings. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but with much the same pattern. Yeah, there were some highlights. David was a king after God's own heart. Solomon built a magnificent temple to house the Ark of the Covenant, where the priests would perform their sacrifices, where the people would come and worship their God. But Solomon's trust in God faded. The people pursued other gods. The kingdom split. John Piper puts it well. A thousand years, give or take, of the inability of Israel to keep the law. A thousand years of covenant breaking over and over again. It is a bleak, bleak history Disobedience, followed by punishment, followed by repentance, followed by mercy, followed by disobedience, followed by repentance, followed by mercy, followed by more judgment, and on and on it goes. The Old Testament ends with Israel scattered, the Ark of the Covenant gone, and just a remnant of God's people in Jerusalem living under foreign rule, worshiping at a second temple that was just a shadow of the original. Think about what they had. 
God had chosen them to be his people. He was in their midst, powerful and awesome. He did amazing works. He rescued them from slavery, delivered them to the promised land. He spoke personally to their leaders. He, he gave them clear laws, and then he also gave them a system for making sacrifices to atone for when they failed to keep those laws. He promised them his presence, his peace, his forgiveness, his blessing. If only they would remain faithful to him. And yet they did not. Israel would not keep God's commandments. They did not trust in him. For Israel, God with us meant literally seeing God's fearsome presence. It meant receiving his miraculous provision, and it meant having him speak to them through the law and the prophets. But the story of the Old Testament is that sinful man cannot be truly saved by that kind of God with us. God was showing us that if we were to be saved, we needed something more. We needed him to be with us even more. Enter Jesus. We have already talked about what it means that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. In terms of presence, he wasn't a, a thundering cloud on a mountain. He was God in the likeness of man. He showed us God and his glory in a more intimate way. In terms of God speaking to us, he was the word that became flesh and dwelled among us. He didn't abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets, bringing grace and truth to a people in need of saving. The four gospels tell us about the life of Jesus. He was on this earth for about 33 years. He lived in perfect obedience. He taught large crowds. He taught his small group of disciples. He was killed, buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death on our behalf. He was God with us, and he was God doing things for us that we could not do for ourselves. He did the obeying, he did the sacrificing, he did the remaining faithful. And then, exit Jesus. So we talked about what it was like, what, what God with us looked like before Jesus. Now we need to look at what it looks like after Jesus. Because Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he leaves Here's Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. He was gone. But he had told his followers this was going to happen. And, and he didn't just say, don't worry, you'll live through it. It'll be okay. He told them it would be better for them if he went away. Let's look at John chapter 16, picking up in verse 4. Jesus is talking to his disciples, preparing them for his departure. He says, 
I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying that there is something even better than him being with his followers on earth. And that something better is the helper, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus is sending. With Jesus having been crucified and resurrected, we now needed God to be with us in, a, in yet another way. God's plan to save us by being with us was still unfolding. We needed the Spirit. God the Spirit is how we gain new life in Christ. It's the Spirit who gives life. We must be born again in the Spirit. When, through faith in Christ, we're born to that new life, it's the Spirit that seals our salvation, that makes us Christ, that marks us as His. And it's the Spirit that grows us into being more and more like Christ. Look at these passages also from John, back in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So far that sounds kind of familiar to the Old Testament passage. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So, for the believer... What's the Spirit do? He teaches us. He helps us remember all that God has said. He helps us keep God's commandments. He helps us love Jesus. And that's not all, because the Spirit that does all this is in us. He dwells with us. The Spirit dwells in us. In us, it says, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. In Romans, Paul makes clear that the Spirit, that through the Spirit, we're unified with one another and we're unified with Jesus. We are one with Christ through the Spirit. That's why, that's why Scripture can say that Jesus lives in us. It's also why Jesus can say right before he's leaving, that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Okay, that's a lot. Let's, let's recap a little bit. We said that before Jesus, God was with his people. And God is still with us now. But there are big differences in how God has been with his people over history. And it's in those differences that we see his plan unfolding. The unfolding of God's plan to save a people for himself. And then as we, as we looked at the before and after, we also considered God with us in terms of 
his presence with his people and his communication to his people. His presence. God has always been present with his people, but it has changed over time. His presence on Mount Sinai was visible to Israel, but they stood far away, trembling. His presence was much nearer when Jesus walked with and talked with his disciples. But his presence now is within you and me if we have been saved by faith in Jesus. What about his communication? Before Jesus, God spoke to his people through the law and the prophets. He only spoke directly to a select few. But now, the spirit, the helper, dwells within us, and for each believer, he brings to mind what the Lord has said. He leads us in wisdom and enlightens us in understanding God's word. It's, it's an amazing story. God's plan to save his people unfolded through him being with us more and more. So much so that God with us has become God in us. What does that mean? Let's close with just a couple applications of that truth. First, we cannot live apart from God, our creator. We're utterly dependent on him. It's not that, it's not that life is better if God is with us. It's that there's no life at all if God is not with us. We can't follow him on our own. We can't love him on our own. We can't obey him on our own. We need him to be with us. In fact, we need him to be in us. The story of the Bible and of human history is that for us to live with God, he must live in us. There's no other way. We're utterly dependent on him. That means, at minimum, that we should desire to spend time with him in dependence on him in prayer and in his word and with his people. And if we struggle with those things, we should ask for his help and we have a helper to do those things. Second, God's not done yet. This plan we've been talking about, this unfolding plan to save his people by being our Emmanuel, it's not done. It's not fully complete. Yes, he, he sent his son Jesus to live among us and die in our place. Yes, he sent his spirit to live in us and bring us new life. But I don't think I have to tell you that we're not yet fully with him. Instead, we wait for what is promised in Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. The best kind of Emmanuel, God with us, is still to come. We're not there yet. We will dwell together. We will see his face. And when that happens, there will be no more risk of sin or curse because unlike in Eden, we are now one with Christ, sealed by the spirit of the living God living inside of us. Jesus came once at Christmas as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is coming back, and then God's plan to save his people will be complete. We will then have God with us perfectly, completely, forever. And as we close, we consider the end of Revelation, where Jesus himself says, Surely I am coming soon. And we pray in response, along with all of God's people, Come. Lord Jesus, let's pray. Father, your plan is almost beyond our comprehension. We are grateful as rebellious sinners that you have done for us what we cannot do ourselves. We could not do ourselves. We we needed you to do it for us and to be in us so that we could be with you. Lord, we are grateful as your church for the blessings of living in this age where we have the Spirit. We pray that you help us share that good news, share the the desperate need for a savior and the fact that Jesus is that savior and that life is available to those who trust in him. And yet we also eagerly await the return of Jesus Christ so that we can be with you, that your dwelling place will be fully and eternally with us. We ask this in your name. Amen.